Welcome to What's the Story? I'm Kim Burns, and I'm here today with Barbara Becker, who has written this brilliant book called Heartwood, The Art of Living with the End in Mind. Barbara, I was saddened. I was enlightened. There were so many different feelings uh, and different thought processes I went through reading this book because I think most people are completely afraid of thinking about having the end in mind as they live their life. So why don't we start out by talking about your incredible journey and how you began even thinking about this. I mean, I know you came from a family of medical professionals, which I'm guessing that had something to do with it being surrounded by people that were in a life-saving profession. It definitely helped a little. My dad was a neurosurgeon and my mom was a nurse and my grandparents were also a doctor nurse combination. Um, And you would think that that would have made me all calm and collected about death. But when I was about 30 years old, my earliest childhood friend, Marissa, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And she did something that was just extraordinary to me. I mean, she really took on the end of her life, especially that last year, with so much energy and vigor and appreciation for life, rather than a like why me dread, that I just became inspired to start looking at that question, can we live our lives fully if we acknowledge that someday we will die? Well, I know it's really hard for you, and I read that passage, uh, as far as you visiting with her and your childhood places that you frequented and that you were sort of taken aback by the way she was reacting to it, which was the beginning from what I interpreted as your evolution. And what I want to tell our listeners about, because this isn't the, this isn't the get total giveaway, but you do end up as an interfaith reverend, uh, you know, many years later, uh, But with meeting with Marissa, and at the time she had or was going to be married to a Dave, you have a Dave, uh, and your Dave uh, is Jewish, and you had gone through a little bit of Sturm and Drang of whether or not uh, you should be married, even though you're madly in love with him, so you went on a journey. Why don't we talk a little bit about that? Because I think that at that younger age is what really starts changing people. I mean, yeah, some people change. I don't know when they're 50s and 60s, but tell us about your your initial thought after you left Dave on purpose. <laughs> yes, I did leave Dave on purpose because Dave had always imagined that he would have a Jewish family. And I didn't know anything about Judaism. So I said, like, okay, wise guy, like, why don't you teach me? <laughs> you know? Right. And he's like, I, you know, why don't we take a class together? Because it turns out he had a lot to learn about his own faith tradition as well. So we took a beautiful year-long course together, and we visited a lot of synagogues, and we learned how to braid challah, and we really participated in ceremonies based on Judaism, which were so beautiful and so moving to me. You know, I think, um, I know many of your listeners are in this New York City region, 
And we are such a diverse part of the country. So I don't think it's as unusual um, as it is for other places for us to encounter other faith traditions. And the real trick is to just keep an open mind and to see what we can learn from the other traditions, how they can actually move and, and in, enliven our own lives. Well, you know, you did so many studies uh, with uh, the monks, the Buddhists, what have you, uh, which, of course, is all about love and bringing love to others, which is, I think, the message throughout your book. But I did notice that I didn't find a lot about the traditional churches of Europe or the or Catholicism or, uh, you know, Episcopalians such as myself. And I found that to be interesting and from very many different standpoints, one being that maybe those religions don't teach the same thing. Maybe they're less inclusive. I mean, what was it about Judaism and the the practice of Buddhism and, and, and these other practices that were more enlightening to you? Mm. Well, you know, the very interesting thing about going on an interfaith journey is that the more you learn about other traditions, somehow it reawakens you to the tradition of your own birth. Uh, they find that many, many times. And that was certainly the case for me. Um, I grew up in the Methodist churches and also in the Dutch Reformed Church because a lot of my family was from Holland. Um, and it was so beautiful to um, like learn the depth and the mystical dimension of many traditions from like Islam and Hinduism and the mindfulness-based traditions of Buddhism and to really sink back into the ultimate part that matters, which is the heart and compassion and sympathetic joy to others. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that, and who wouldn't agree that politics gets in the way of this and money gets in the way of this. And the difference that I've seen with these religions is, again, when you go back to Buddhism, let's say, for example, or even Judaism, which is really about giving back, uh, they they keep circling back to what you're saying is like the whole circle of life and the rebirth. And that's what I was getting out of your book is we can't be afraid of death because we're just passing things on to the next generation if we've done it the right way or what, whatever. So I want to go back to the string that goes throughout your book of learning about death through practices such as working in hospice, which I, I, is such an amazing journey for anybody because it's hard for those of us to just go visit friends or family who have been in hospice. So tell us a little bit about that and how you handled it and what you were doing at that time. So after Marissa died, and it, it really was some amazing hospice workers who helped her and her family through her final days, you know, I decided that I wanted to give back. I mean, there was 
only so much you can talk about all of this. And then you just want to like return something like a gift to other people. So I became trained by two Zen monks in how to be a compassionate presence at the bedside. And they assigned me to Bellevue Hospital, which is our enormous public hospital. So you get to see people dying in all of their religious and spiritual traditions. I even had a Maori one day, a woman who is um, from New Zealand. Maori is the indigenous tradition of New Zealand. And um, she had come to the United States as an artist, and she was alone uh, when she got her terminal diagnosis. And I sat a lot with her, and she at one point said to me, you know, Barbara, you think I'm alone, but I'm really not. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, um, in my tradition, we believe that the ancestors come around our bedside and they're here. Like they're, they're waiting to reach out their hands and to take me to the other side. And I thought, how incredibly beautiful is that? I mean, it's a thought that has helped me a lot now that my parents have died. I mean, I really do like to think about them as still ever present around me. No, I, I I agree, but I think that even someone who completely agrees with you still finds it difficult to do that. So, in other words, it's I think about my grandmothers. I think about you talk about uh, miscarriages and yeah. the importance of embracing the loss of a child, regardless of a birth or not, and linking the 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 deaths of those souls to your parents who died or whatever. Why don't you let our listeners <laughs> try to understand how to do that? Because it's such a beautiful concept. But for those of us who maybe haven't become reverence or haven't gone on the amazing trek that you have through all these different faiths, that's, that's kind of a big thing to try to get your arms around. It is such a big concept to put your arms around, which is why I came up with the title Heartwood. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. I mean, I was um, really looking for some kind of symbol after my parents died, a metaphor or something that would help me understand that they were still around in a very real way. You know, it wasn't a physical presence, of course, but I really felt their presence in my life. And one day my husband and I were walking in an old growth forest and I learned that inside every tree is a strong pillar called heartwood. No, it's the strongest part of the tree, the part that's most prized by woodworkers for its durability. But what people don't know about heartwood is that it's the dead part of the tree. It's absolutely inert. So it's not participating in the flow of water and nutrients up and down the tree any longer. And I loved that because for the growth rings to grow around the core of the tree, you need what has come before. You need the dead. And I think we people are a lot like the trees, like the people that we've loved and lost form our heartwood and we grow around those memories and we hold them dear to our hearts. You know, some of the traditions that I love the most from around the world are like the Day of the Dead, 
which you see often in Mexico and Mexican yes. diaspora, where people put out photographs of loved ones. Um, they serve their favorite food and drinks on the Day of the Dead. They sing the songs that they loved. And I think it's something that we can borrow with great appreciation. I, I took out pictures of my parents um, and put them on my kitchen counter and lit candles this year. And it really helped bring their memory back into my life. Well, without a doubt. And going back to the hospice, I thought it was extremely interesting that you would go in and you would figure out, okay, this person is Hindu or this person is from wherever, and you would try to find something traditional about their background for you to sing or hum. <laughs> I don't know how you did that. I think, I mean, I was like crying reading it. Was there any point where you just wanted to break down from one, the beauty of it, but the fact that these people were dying. And in a lot of cases, they, they were dying alone. Yes, there are the exceptions of people feeling like they're not dying alone, but literally no family were around. And I, I found that to be really heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, it's so amazing to me how beautiful and sacred those moments can feel I was so sure I was going to be horrified um, and that I wouldn't actually even be able to handle it. Like I had been a candy striper when I was in high school, something that my medical family had sort of pushed me into. And I was just kind of grossed out, <laughs> for lack of a better term, by the whole experience. And this was different. This was learning to be present with every fiber of your being and meeting people where they are, not where you kind of want them to be or expect them to be. Or, you know, the, the Zen monk said to me at one point, you know, you might think you're going into a room with a hospice patient and you're going to have the big existential conversations. But if they're there and they're watching Jeopardy, your job is to just pull up a chair and watch Jeopardy together. And right. that took a lot of the pressure off. Well, except for you, there was one case that you talked about where uh, the gentleman sort of rejected your presence, but other people seemed to be quite accepting. And I had a very close friend in, in hospice and sh she seemed to be in such a dreamy state. Now, is that just a part of, in your opinion, the death process of reaching the end and being in that state of sort of half awareness where they're at peace to a degree? It seems different in every case. And I'm so glad you brought up the example of that man who basically kicked me out of the room. Um, we had learned that it's almost a rite of passage to get kicked out of the room of a hospice patient because there can be so much frustration and pain also at the end of life. I don't mean to say that it's all beautiful. And in this case, the man couldn't yell at his doctor and probably wouldn't his nurse or his social worker. So the next person on the totem pole was me, you know, right. and he just wanted me out of there. And I, I left, you know, I, I did what he wanted me to do. Um, so yeah, there's, there can be acceptance. And I find that 
um, when people have a have spent time with their loved ones talking about death in advance and what they want, almost in the way that we would hire a birth doula to help us right. go through of the birthing process. There are now death doulas to help you know figure out: Do we want music in the room, or do we want it to be silent? No, have we finished our wills? Like who's in charge of our medical decisions? And the more preparation we do while we're healthy, the better. Right. Well, and I, you had toward the end of your book had talked about when we're born, it's the first breath. And when you die, it's your last. And that it really is just this, this cycle. And I love everything that you've worked toward in order to handle this in the way that you have and to help people. But I know so many people who have lost loved ones and it's destroyed their lives and they never stop grieving and they never get past it and they never go to that place of peace. And what can we do for them? What can you recommend for people like that, that they're, they have broken hearts? Yeah. And that's so real. And it's so important to say that the stages of grief that, you know, go th through from like rejection to acceptance um, are not linear. Like we can feel okay one day and absolutely horrible the next. Um, and it might take more, like well more than a year, than a couple of years to get through the grief process, but it doesn't mean it's over. And there's a lot of hope. Um, there are amazing bereavement groups out there. Um, sometimes it makes sense to work with an individual therapist if grief is going on for a long time. Uh, one of the grief sessions that I went through myself that was so wonderful, spent an entire week of a seven-week program dissing on the person who died. And I thought, wow, this is really amazing. Like in the container of a very safe space. I mean, everybody knew why they were doing it. They, you know, they weren't going to come right. back and be haunted by the person right, they were right. talking about. Um, they, they had the opportunity to say the things that were still painful about their relationship. And there's something incredibly healing in that. So we could get really creative. Right. And, and we need to, because no... <laughs> relationship that lasts a lifetime is going to be all happy. It just, That's right. that, it just doesn't work that way. And we tend to bury things and we tend to be idealistic when it's all said and done. Uh, so in the last couple of minutes, we have, aside from um, having everybody go out and grab your book, uh, just, a, just a brief wrap up on being an interfaith reverend and what that really means. And yeah, I mean, to me, it's like if if everybody understood a little bit about everybody else's religion, there'd be a lot less trouble in the world. So how do we do that? I think the first thing to do is to just listen. You know, if there are people who have a different tradition, religious or spiritual tradition in your life, um, you could invite yourself to a family gathering or their house of worship or some holiday. People love to share their beliefs, but it's sort of almost as big a, ta a taboo in our culture as it is to talk about death. So it's not surprising that these two go hand in hand, but really to sit and to openly start talking about what we believe and to be a little vulnerable um, in that sharing, it goes a long way. 
Well, and I think the only time that people are truly offended is when someone else is imposing their own without, you know, <laughs> any leeway for having their own open mind. And so then that's when the defensive reaction occurs. Uh, instead of looking at it, I mean, the way I sort of look at it, because I love to study all religions, I sometimes go with the Buddhists, sometimes I go to church with my boys. It doesn't really matter because I look at it like trying a different restaurant. You know, it's like trying a different culture, trying what somebody else has on their mind or on their plate or whatever it is that you could experience that could add to your, you know, your own, yes, enlightenment, but just bigger thinking and bigger knowledge. It does. It doesn't seem as complicated as it really is. Yes, that is such a beautiful way to say it and such an amazing seed to plant with young people. Right. Yeah. They and and my boys are all about that. They're all about understanding that you're not you're not special. Everybody is. It's 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 a fun yes. So, yes, if you're not okay, we're not okay. That's exactly it. So Barbara Becker, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed your book. I, I learned so much from it. I, aside from feeling sort of like a slacker, I'm like, oh no, what next? What should I do next? Because you have done so much and accomplished so much. And I really appreciate you joining me today. It's such an honor to be with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Kim Burns with What's a Story. Thanks for listening.